Good morning, Ambassador Church. Pastor Mike here. It is great being with you. If you have your Bible, will you please open to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 28 through 30. Today, we're talking about having perseverance through times of uncertainty. I feel like this is a necessary topic for us. Romans 8 is a great passage to help us have perseverance. I sense that um, just as a church, and, and uh, because so many of us are going through so many of the same things these days, we're a few weeks into this stay-at-home order, and yet there isn't necessarily a light at the end of the tunnel with some of the things that we're going through collectively. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we can have some empowerment, some encouragement on how to persevere through times of uncertainty to have a joy in Christ that fuels us to, to get through it uh, and get through it together. So uh, how to persevere in, through times of uncertainty. Speaking of times of uncertainty and our pandemic, uh, a number of online articles have commented on the recent trend of apocalyptic and dystopian movies that have suddenly trended on Amazon Video, Google Play, Netflix, and a number of other movie sites. Uh, most notably, the movie Contagion is an 11-year-old movie that um, was a Steven Soderbergh movie, popular-ish in its uh, original release, but now is number 11 most watched movie on, uh, on Netflix. It's number 21 on Google Play. It's trending on Amazon as well. And it just kind of begs the question, why is this movie in particular so popular all of a sudden? Well, of course, the movie is about a super flu. And uh, the secondary question would be, why are apocalyptic and dystopian movies so popular all of a sudden? Um, while we're in a personal, you know, like while we're all going through a pandemic, why are these movies so popular? A recent uh, article was written about a, a local scholar, um, not a Christian scholar, but uh, from a local college, uh, and a psychologist was talking about how watching these apocalyptic movies address our need to deal with life and the meaning of life, and the theory is called terror management. Terror management theory is the process that people go through when they're trying to cope with the worst possible scenario that they could go through and what they would do, what they should do, and it brings up questions about life, death, and the meaning of our existence. This scholar writes, it's kind of, watching these movies is kind of like a happily ever after fantasy for adults. Maybe the world is obliterated and our favorite character bites the dust in a tragic, drawn-out scene, but in the end, the world is saved. And I think it's part of our terror management theory bringing us some comfort in times of uncertainty. There's hope at the end, she writes. We watch apocalyptic movies so that we can go through the process because we know that by the time the credits roll at the end of those movies, we're going to see a hero and he or she will give their life, like the plots of many movies, to save the world. But that by the time we see the end of this movie, we'll have some resolution in a time of uncertainty. Well, maybe you're going through that kind of season of uncertainty right now. Maybe your life, even before the coronavirus hit, you were going through a time of uncertainty. Um, my hope as we talk about Jesus this morning is that you find some certainty in a life of uncertainty, that you find some hope and some solid joy <clears throat> in a season where otherwise we're, uh, a lot of depression is hitting, a lot of isolation and loneliness is kind of plaguing people's lives, as well as joblessness and other things that have been really discouraging in the last few weeks. Uh, our three points for today are that you can persevere through times of uncertainty when you remember that our bad things turn out for good, our good things cannot be lost, and the best is yet to come. And I'm taking those three points from a sermon, actually, from the 1700s. Jonathan Edwards, one of the foremost, you know, like uh, Christian thinkers, thinkers in even human history, 
he wrote a sermon when he was 18 years old. It was uh, most likely his first public sermon ever delivered. And he wrote a sermon on Romans chapter 8, and he wrote those three points. He was talking about Christian joy, Christian happiness, and he wrote the points. We're taking our three points from his sermon in 1721, and, uh, and we're going to go through Romans 8, talking about how our bad things turn out for good, the good things that we have cannot be lost, and the best is yet to come. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see in uh, Romans 8, verse 1, it will get some context for our main passage. Paul writes, Therefore, there is now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, it stands to reason that if Paul is saying there's no condemnation for, in, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that the context that Christians were dealing with is that they felt condemned. And if you go to verse 18, Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that's revealed in us. Well, it stands to reason the context here, and we know something from history, is that Christians were going through a kind of like prolonged suffering, as well as episodic kind of flare-ups within persecution and, and death and nakedness and hardship and sword and famine and all kinds of things that happen uh, in the ancient world and happened to Christians in the time. So the church is going through suffering, and then Paul writes in what is now a famous passage of Scripture in verses 28 through 30. We're going to take our three points from the three verses that are in verse, uh, verses 28 through 30. Three points, three verses, so let's move through them. One, <clears throat> Romans 8 tells us that our bad things turn out for good. Verse 28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, the NIV might, the, the translation in the NIV might fool us on, in terms of some of the cultural expectations that we have in our day today. The most literal translation from the NIV of this verse is that for those who love him, God works together all things for good. God works together all kinds of things for good for those who love him. Well, the opposite of that is that things would just fall apart. Um, personally, when I got married seven, around seven years ago, um, I realized that my just mental capacities were not as strong as I thought they were. I, days into my marriage, I realized that I sleepwalk, and I sleepwalk a lot. And when I was single, I knew that I sleptwalked because I had neighbors that said, hey man, I saw you like walking around outside of your house at 3 a.m. last night. What was the deal? Uh, I knew I had issues with sleepwalking. I didn't realize that in the first month of my marriage, uh, three quarters of the days of that first month would just involve me waking up and throwing a pillow at my wife because in my head, in, in my sleepwalky brain, I thought that I was having a pillow fight with my wife. Or that I would wake up in the middle of the night and clean the bathroom and fold the laundry, very nice of me, and then just go back to sleep. And I did this like all the time, and I realized that I actually just had no control over my mental capacities while I was sleeping. I, I realized that um, I just don't have the same like mental strength and control over my life. And some of you might have had that experience in life. When you were young, you thought you had control over your physical body, but then you hit a certain age and then your knee just pops like that now. That's the new normal for your knee, or that your back's just not as strong as it used to be. In the end, I think we know that in a sinful, broken world, that things fall apart. Now, that's not a given, because I think in our cultural moment right now, there was kind of a belief, and maybe some of you watching this morning kind of have that assumption, that the world has a trajectory 
towards equality, towards justice, and towards goodness. And that if, um, if we don't mess it up, humans have it inside of themselves to create equality, to create justice, to create goodness in the world. Like, we can do it. Um, I'm thinking of, um, in the first few days of the pandemic, there was a song that trended on uh, the, online of a bunch of celebrities who got together and sang the song Imagine. And uh, I don't remember all the lyrics, but, you know, to paraphrase, the song says, imagine there's no heaven, um, imagine there's no hell, and, and it, it's easy if you try, but you can kind of deny those things and move past them so that the world can be one. That's essentially the message of part of the song. And um, it sounds like a nostalgic song. Maybe that's why people just saw it as something that was hopeful at the time. But in the end, that is a, an example of a particular belief that says the problem with the world is that everyone tries to have their own belief about God and they say other people are wrong or that, um, that if you imagine a world of peace and justice and equality, then you, we can do it. But then at the same time, pandemics hit and injustice hits. And I think times like now are a good time to reevaluate and say, maybe we're not all as good as we thought. Maybe the world is broken. Maybe things fall apart. Now, here's my point in that. If things fall apart, then it's good news when God says, I hold things together. And it says that in our passage, that God works things together. He holds them together. That's good news. There are three kind of implications I want to move through very quickly about our passage in, uh, in this verse here, in verse 28. First, <clears throat> Christians, it's that this verse tells us all things happen to Christians. Like all kinds of things still happen to Christians. I think sometimes there's a belief that if I put my faith in Christ, if I love God, if I make the right choices, then bad things in the world won't happen to me, or, or not all of the bad things that could happen will happen to me, or that mostly bad circumstances um, will not happen to me if I love God. But all things happen to Christians. All kinds of things happen to Christians. If you look in verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Well, the implication of the verse is that all of those things are happening, but they won't separate us from the love of Christ. But you know that you're living a normal Christian life if all kinds of things still happen to you. Trouble, hardship, maybe that's something you're going through right now. Persecution, maybe you're going through persecution. Famine, nakedness, maybe, you're, maybe you have nakedness in your life. Danger, sword, whatever it is, all kinds of things happen to Christians, and yet none of them can separate us from the love of Christ. Secondly, uh, the second implication is that when things work together for good, it's because of God. We have this kind of sentimental religious belief sometimes that creeps into our biblical worldview that says, um, I kind of like deserve for things to work out. Maybe it's a modern mindset. Maybe it's a, a, a religious mindset. But in the end, some of us live our lives assuming that things ought to work out or uh, we might kind of like fall into some of the beliefs of today to say, or, or I'll sue, or I'll expect a check in the mail to compensate me, or I can expect some sort of program to be started to save me from uh, hardship. Whatever it is, if there's wrong done to me, then I deserve good treatment as like repayment. Whatever it is, Christians with a biblical worldview can't abide by that because we know that at our heart, we're sinful people and that we're saved from a sinful world. 
And so we don't have this kind of like religious or modern sentimentality to say everything always works out or that things ought to work out for me because I'm one of the good people. If anything, Christians say, hey, in light of my sin, in light of the sinful broken world that I'm called to be a part of for this time and in light of the gospel of Christ, then it's a good news thing. It's God's love and grace on me if I have food for today and someone to hold my hand. The good news of the gospel shows us that we're not deserving of, um, of everything that we wish for or even assume that most people should have, but instead God gets the credit when things in the world are held together. If I can teach you just kind of like a 50-cent word, a theological term, common grace is a word that some people use to say God's love obviously extends to the world such that the laws of physics and, and it hold together, that there's still love in the world, there's still goodness in the world for people who love God and who deny God. That's his common grace and love for all humanity, that some things are held together. And so my point is, the implication of the passage is, when things are held together, it's because of God's goodness and his grace, either on your life individually or his common grace in the world. And the third implication from this verse is that though bad things happen, they will work for good. What I don't mean is that bad things are really good things. I think sometimes people think, well, the Bible says <clears throat> if something bad happens to you, then, um, then it's really a good thing. And that no matter what bad things happen or what unjust things happens to someone's life, then you can just say, hey, God's probably trying to teach you a lesson. That's not necessarily what the Bible says about every bad thing that happens in your life. It's not like the Bible says bad things are just good things and you should just get over it if you are a godly Christian. I'll give you an example. In John 11, Jesus is in front of the tomb of Lazarus and he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Jesus, in this passage, was angry and weeping. Now, Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead and all of Lazarus' family are distraught and understandably so. And he doesn't just roll in with a, a chipper attitude thinking, wait till they get a load of me, I'm going to do this miracle and everyone's going to be happy. Jesus is sympathetic to the loss and he weeps. He doesn't say, I'm going to show you my glorious power, so cheer up guys, I'm here. He understands that bad things are still bad and God sympathizes with our pain. Even if God has a plan for it, even if God has a solution to it, even if there's something that you can't see right now through something that you're going through, but God does have a purpose for it, the one thing we see in this passage is that God still sympathizes with our pain. Bad things are still bad to God, and he's, his crying shows us that God hates loneliness and loss and pain and suffering. So the promise that we see in our verse is, that, uh, is not that bad things won't happen, or the bad things aren't really bad, but it's that God will turn out and shape things for good in his will, in his perfect perspective over all the different things that are going on in the universe and in our world, that he will turn those things for good and for his glory. That's our first point. Our second point is that the good things that we have cannot be lost. Take a look in verse 29. It says, For those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Well, if anything we can take from this passage, it's that God doesn't promise better circumstances, but he does promise a better life. He promises us a joy that's bigger than the circumstances of our lives. Uh, sometimes we might say that uh, God doesn't say 
that uh, he's going to give you better circumstances, but he will give you something that's greater. What I mean is, it's not as if when you become a Christian, God promises you a certain level of income or a certain level of positive circumstances, but he does provide you something that is altogether better than great circumstances, altogether better than a great job, a stable income, and a bright future in this world. If you look in our passage, it says that um, we are foreknown and predestined. Paul uses these terms to comfort us in a time of need. Keep in mind, when we read our passage, we saw that the church is going through suffering, and then Paul's big help for a church who's suffering is, keep in mind, for those he foreknew, he also predestined. Paul is using those words to comfort a suffering church. Um, Those terms are meant to lend permanence and to convey the forever nature of our salvation in Christ. Those who are foreknown, they're known by God. They were also predestined as a part of God's plan for his salvation for the world. Uh, Those words kind of like bring up a metaphor for God's relationship to humanity that's in the prophets through the rest of the New Testament, and that is the metaphor of God's covenant marriage relationship to his church. In this metaphor, uh, Jesus is the bridegroom, and he accepts his bride, the church, people who would put their faith in Jesus. And uh, like our wedding ceremony, brides are dressed in white, pure. They're, they, they're beautiful, and they're accepted by a groom, and then they're united with that groom for an entire lifespan. That's the metaphor of our wedding ceremony. And in the same way, this passage is meant to convey to us there's a permanence, there's a marriage, there's a covenant between God's relationship, or between God and you. There's a relationship there. So, if you're going through stuff right now, you should know that your relationship with him is secure because he foreknows you. If you're lonely, then you are known. If you feel like God's abandoned you, understand that you were predestined from before the foundation of the world to be his. And now you're his if you've put your faith in Christ and nothing will change that. There's a permanence to that relationship. Now, I just want to pause and say, if you are hearing that, And it doesn't matter to you. Maybe you say, okay, I understand all that. God loves me. Jesus died for me. He knew my name and the fact that I would choose him from the foundation of the world. Jesus died for me. And if you say, listen, I know that, but what good is that if I don't have a job? Or what good is that if I feel lonely? Or what good is that if the world seems like it's falling apart? I want to just encourage you to kind of lean into that to kind of stare into some of that despair for just a minute and ask yourself, why doesn't it matter to you, Christian, that God has died for you, that you're his, that your future is secure in him? It's not a question of whether it's good that God saved you. It might be a question of how important your job is to you, how important um, friendship is to you, how important the approval of others is. Whenever we fall into those deep places of despair, when we say, I don't care if God loves me, I need blank. Well, maybe the, uh, what that tells us is that what you are putting your hope in, your, your Savior, your real God, so to speak, is this other thing that you feel like you need. And so I would just encourage you as an application to just kind of look into that issue for a bit and do some question asking about, is a job, is having people around you, is a certain level of security or money really a good God? And then to transfer some of your affection, some of your hope, some of your loyalty even to, to 
a God who is permanent and does love you more than any of those things. A tangent, but I hope a helpful one. If you look at verse 29, we'll see uh, the last thing about our, our second point here in verse 29 is that we are predestined for a purpose. God has a permanent relationship with you so that if you're going through suffering, you'll know there's always a reason for it. And that main reason why we go through suffering is that God would use it to conform you to the likeness of his son. That's what it says in verse 29. You're predestined and you go through stuff for a purpose. The point is that Jesus didn't suffer on the cross so that you would never suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you will become more like him. My hope for us as a church is that this would be a defining moment for us, that we would uh, go through this defining moment in a way that refines us, that draws us to hope more in Christ, so that by the time we're finally able to like open the door to our, our front door and look outside and, and kind of like come to grips with, with what it's like to have freedom again, that we'll be refined and further perfected and grow in our dependence on Jesus so that we would be conformed to the likeness of Christ. The promise is not that you won't go through suffering. The promise is that God will continue to work in you and through you through trials. And lastly, we'll close with this, that the best is yet to come. In verse 30, it says, And those God predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The future that we're looking forward to is one of glorification. One of the promises that we rest on to have encouragement through perseverance is that we have a bright future. That we, because of God's saving work in us now and his promise to return and redeem the world, is that we have, we're on a collision course with greatness and perfection. Because God is saving us, he has saved us, and he will save us in his return. And we spend eternity with him with that glorification that's mentioned in the passage. As a, uh, as a small example to this, today in Orange County, um, we're filming today, it's Thursday. Today's the first day that you can play golf in Orange County. Just the thought for me personally of being free to uh, do what, honestly, I was surprised that why we couldn't do it in the first place. But like just the ability to grab my clubs and go walk around and, and play golf now and having the freedom to do, to do that changes my perspective on today because I know that by next Wednesday, I might be able to get a tee time and go golf. A personal example, but in the same way, we look forward to a future that we have in Jesus, and it affects the hope and the encouragement and the motivation that we have today. And sometimes when we get lazy, when we get discouraged, when we get depressed, it, just our view of a depressing future is what makes us depressed right now. But every single Christian has a future that is united with and, and involves glorification with God. And uh, that's meant to be a concrete reality in the life of a Christian every day. You'll notice in verse 30, it says, those he justified, he also glorified. The word glorified is in the past tense. But almost all of the commentators who write about and study this uh, passage have said that the word glorified is meant to be in the past tense so that Christians would see the concrete nature of how much it is accomplished, how much it is finished, how much it is realized today though our future glorification and our future unity in heaven for eternity is, uh, you know, in the future. That's my hope for us as a church, is that we would have that hope. We'd be able to wake up in the time of a pandemic and say, whatever happens, the end of this story is positive. Whatever happens to me, there is a resolution because somebody, Jesus, gave their life 
to create a, 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 a solution, to create victory, to save us from the global pandemics, the global pandemic of sin and the brokenness of our world. There's a video that came online and is, is trending even this week. You can look it up on YouTube. It's called Kids React to Beauty and the Beast Without a Happy Ending. Uh, essentially, a bunch of parents sat their kids in a room and then showed the movie The Beauty and the Beast, but they cut it about 10 minutes early, right where the beast just dies in Belle's arms. And the beast looks up at Belle and says, I'm so happy that I finally, I could see you one last time. And then Belle goes, ah! And then they just put in like a, a fade to black. And then it comes up and it says the end. And then they filmed all their kids basically just being angry and frustrated that Beauty and the Beast just ended miserably. And then, of course, they, they used it as a teachable moment to talk to them, uh, these kids, about um, why didn't you like that movie? What was frustrating about it? Why are you crying right now? And it's because we have this internal belief that the world should end happily. We have a heart longing for hope to be able to get through times right now to say it will get better. Something will change. And if our hope is just placed in the government, if our hope is placed in just general humanity that we will all just get together and be one, well, I guess my challenge to you is to say maybe that's not the case. It doesn't seem to be the case. But in Christ, we have a bright future. We have a, a guaranteed future of glorification. We have a relationship with God today and tomorrow that has been predestined and foreknown, and it's concrete. Uh, we have a God who gives us a future where the best is yet to come. So my hope, uh, church, is that we have that prayer um, today, that prayer for, God, uh, I'm, I'm discouraged, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm depressed, and that you would be able to be honest with God about that, but then also kind of like engage our minds with the truth that in the end, our bad things turn out for good in his sovereignty and his will and his love for us, that the good things we have cannot be lost, like the best things in life that God gives us today, namely his son and a relationship with him. Those things can never be lost. There's permanence to them. And the best things in our lives are actually yet to come. Let's pray.